I did have, um, I had great plans for a, a lovely PowerPoint. But those, that, those three magic words in the introduction, head of department. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my duties intruded uh, on, on my plans for a, a lovely PowerPoint. Um, but we'll survive without it. It was only going to be color, really. Uh, okay. Um, so amid a wealth of news stories uh, regarding the danger posed to democracy in a post-truth age, an age predicated on the power of algorithms and social media, one story from last Saturday's Guardian grabbed my attention particularly. Based as it was on um, an outraged reaction by the Daily Telegraph, had a picture, I don't know if you probably saw it, um, a picture of the benches in the House of Commons behind uh, John McDonnell as he made a speech in response to the autumn statement, the Chancellor's autumn statement. The, fo the photo showed um, 42, just captured 42 Labour MPs, half of whom were fiddling with electronic gadgets thereby conjuring the, the possibility, indeed the allegation, that MPs were not really doing their jobs properly. Now this intrigued me because the response from at least one uh, MP, uh, quoted by The Guardian, reminded me of some of the issues that interest me as a historian of the media uh, in the 17th century. So as one MP explained, tweeting is a direct way for me to get my message out to people, noting that a large proportion of her 20,000 followers on Twitter um, were her own constituents. This way I can communicate live, commentate live, she said. What this indicates, I would suggest, is that um, this is part of a long tradition of thinking about how political life, and most particularly parliament, um, can and should adapt to technological change and to a media revolution. 17th century Britain is obviously well known for having witnessed both political revolution, revolutions, uh, plural, uh, and uh, a media revolution in terms of the latter, uh, in terms of a dramatic development of cheap print, so-called pamphleteering, and the birth of meaningful um, printed news and newspapers. Um, as the print medium, uh, which had hitherto been more or less scholarly and elite, came to be used to reach a popular and mass audience, not least with political comment and coverage of current affairs and indeed parliamentary affairs. And what could be shown is that during the 17th century, the way in which Parliament grappled with new media uh, and new media genres reflected significant political thinking, both inside and outside Parliament, about the nature of representation, the importance of trust, and the proper limits of accountability, in ways which are suggestive about how to frame modern debates about the relationship between Parliament, the media, and healthy political culture, and how to avoid um, the things that we worry about, <laughs> that they're already with us, um, disengagement and destabilizing radicalism. So one thing that we can observe um, very clearly as part of the media revolution in the 17th century seems to involve the way in which print um, ensured that Parliament came under um, a kind of concerted uh, pressure from without um, as part of a petitioning process. P petitioning was transformed. Petitioning, a key way uh, in which members of the public engage with Parliament, express their views, try to influence Parliament. We still have it today, of course. Um, that, that age-old petitioning process was transformed by the uh, opportunities offered by print. It became possible to print one's petition. Uh, it, that, um, it seems to me, um, made it much more feasible to participate uh, uh, for members of the public. 
the availability of print as a technology was an empowering um, uh, uh, thing. So, in a sense, not just aristocrats and wealthy merchants um, uh, began petitioning Parliament and using print to do so, uh, but also citizens from across the social spectrum. Early examples involve minor officials, poor freemen, so-called distressed prisoners, as well as humble tradesmen like warfingers and hot pressers, as well as a group of the poorest sort of tobacco pipe makers uh, from, indeed, uh, rural Somerset. Um, and the reality is that print was, use, was useful to anyone who lacked alternative methods for influencing the parliamentary process. Printed petitions could be resubmitted on different occasions. It was possible to produce a succession of amended texts relating to ongoing grievances and an unfolding case in Parliament. Printing made it possible to produce hundreds of copies of individual texts for distribution amongst MPs and peers. In, in 1646, uh, uh, one uh, very disgruntled um, uh, petitioner, Edmund Felton, um, he'd learnt disgruntlement um, from his father, as his brother, who's the man who assassinates Buckingham. He resorts to petitioning rather than stabbing um, the politicians he really hates. Um, who attended one morning, quote, at the door of the House of Commons, where he delivered copies to most or many of the members of the said house. Some people at the time claimed that such tactics were slighted and disliked by MPs, but attempts to prevent such tactics suggest that animosity on the part of MPs and peers, more obviously peers than MPs, um, sprang from the aggressive behaviour and in intemperate tone of particular supplicants. If they became aggressive uh, physically or rhetorically, Parliament seemed concerned. Other than that, Parliament was more or less content to adapt to this new world. Indeed, distribution of petitions continued largely uninterrupted. We have a lovely um, eyewitness account, or first-hand account, uh, from a man called Sir Roger Twiston, uh, who recalled being approached by, uh, outside the Commons uh, in 1647 by a person who stood in the lobby with several petitions in his hands to present them each member. And having been mistaken for an MP, he was just a member of the gentry hanging around, um, uh, he was given a copy, read it, and engaged in conversation with the petitioner. Some printed texts explicitly addressed, i.e. their title became uh, addressed to every individual member of parliament. Others added printed endorsements on the reverse of printed appeals so that they could easily be located, filed away, um, once they had been folded um, and stored. A man called Charles Hotham, uh, again, a serial, serially disgruntled um, uh, academic, actually, uh, 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 explained that to fight his case without printing was, quote, near impossible, his bodily strength not sufficing to transcribe so many copies of himself, while to have done it by others would have been too vast a charge. So a very real sense of the empowerment uh, offered by print. And petitioners, more importantly, um, explicitly recognised that Parliament was the highest authority in the land and that it was the citizens, quote, last refuge. So printed petitions made petitioning easier. And while Parliament worried about this, fearing being inundated as a result, and they were at times inundated, to the point where at times they kind of closed this down, at least temporarily, uh, suspending the dealing with private business in order to concentrate on public business. There was a war going on. Um, the opportunities for discussing uh, uh, private business occasionally, as I say, uh, uh, shut down. Occasionally tempted to ban printed petitioning. Um, ultimately, Parliament responded, reacted, and adapted um, to this challenge. Um, 
more or less explicitly arguing that, no, 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 we shouldn't ban it, tempting though it is, we ought to recognise the need to be responsive to these demands. By the end of the century, uh, indeed, um, Parliament insisted that petitions should be printed. They wouldn't accept them otherwise. And of course, what actually is interesting about this petitioning, this kind of wave of, of pressure on Parliament from without, is actually that Parliament was involved in soliciting um, those kinds of appeals. There's a somewhat more dynamic relationship between inside and outside uh, of Westminster. Um, very early on in the 1640s, Parliament and members of Parliament explicitly solicited information from members of the public, wanting to be seen to be useful and uh, valuable as an institution. So petitioners and lobbyists, in some um, uh, regards, were responding to expectations about the role of Parliament and what Parliament could do that had been deliberately fostered by Parliament. In the early 1640s, this began um, with calls for information about defective or malignant parish ministers. Uh, that was a considerable problem at the time. Um, uh, in a sense, uh, 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 instigating... Uh, a, a flood of whistleblowing, really, about public officials. My minister, he hangs around the alehouse too much, uh, and I think he's a crypto-Catholic. Um, that kind of stuff. In addition, petitioning and lobbying can be shown to have been informed by knowledge. How the institution worked or was supposed to work, um, not least information uh, about how the institution was supposed to work that was written by MPs and, more obviously, uh, parliamentary clerks and published to the world. And informed by information about and information coming out of Westminster. So, in a sense, these petitioners are not merely uh, exploiting a technology that enables them to participate, but in, in participating... Not, they are responding to what Parliament wants them to do, which is to petition, and they are uh, capitalising upon a wealth of information about how Parliament worked that was more or less um, officially sanctioned. And it, there seems to me, and this is where things get really interesting and, and kind of uh, linked with uh, modern parallels, in terms of the willingness and ability of MPs and peers to think about how much information to put in the public domain or allow into the public domain, information that will affect the way in which members of the public participate and the degree to which they can participate. As such, we can explore the way in which MPs thought about and debated how much information it was appropriate to allow out of Parliament and how that information could get out. And, and here we see some surprising results, I think, in relation to an institution that is very often thought about, especially in its early modern incarnation, maybe in its modern incarnation too, as being highly secretive um, as an institution. So there's a, a challenging of secrecy going on, um, but that challenge to secrecy often comes from within Parliament. So in no small part, this involved how once privileged information, not inaccessible information, just information that you would have had to pay a lot to get, um, became cheap and commonplace through being printed, uh, not least in the new medium of newspapers. And there's an extraordinary amount of information, if we look closely, uh, available to contemporaries about a range of really key things uh, for a, a, a citizen. 
The names of individual MPs, um, the ability to keep up with elections, indeed contested elections, disputed elections, in real time, in, in that sense. Um, being able to discover who were uh, the, the membership, details about the membership of key committees, alongside evidence about the times and places of their meetings and their remit. Details about current, not just past, but current and forthcoming business of the two houses, especially the House of Commons. House of Lords always, at that time at least, more secretive. And the pervasive nature of such journalistic tactics indicates official tolerance of a practice about reporting such information that served to foster or at least facilitate participation. Contemporary readers could thus have been forgiven for thinking that their input was welcome unless it was explicitly prohibited. It was occasionally explicitly prohibited, uh, as on an occasion uh, when one newspaper, a leading newspaper, the Perfect Diurnal, announced in December 1647 that a, a meeting to discuss radical agitation um, in the army would involve a close committee, a secretive committee, not open to the public. But the, 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 the fact that they reference committees that will be closed explicitly or implicitly recognises that many other committees were and expected to be open to members of the public. So contemporaries would surely have uh, concluded um, that other pieces of information implicitly, sometimes explicitly, invited them to participate. So the, the, inf the, the, the flow of information out of Parliament seems to be designed to encourage people to participate in its business. So we have an official pamphlet, um, in, for example, in January 1648, that provided a list of a new committee for grievances, committee of grievances, uh, complete with the committee's remit, the times and places of its regular meetings, and the names of its chairmen. In 1653, readers were given evidence about all of the key standing committees in what is known as Barebones Parliament, the nominated assembly. This included, um, this was then, in, uh, sorry, this was included in the published lists of MPs and then recycled and supplemented by newspapers. And what's extraordinary is that journalists and publishers were prepared to publicise committees in a systematic, by 1653, systematic rather than piecemeal fashion. Indeed, they too included not merely the times and places of meetings, the number of MPs that it was required to make the body court, and the names of their chairman. In the case of the Committee for Petitions, you know, the most public-facing, if you like, of, of, of these committees, readers were given practical advice about how to submit their claims and complaints. And newspapers not only noted that petitions would be received on Thursdays and that Mondays and Tuesdays would be devoted to hearings, but also explained that petitions needed to be endorsed by at least one MP. Further directions specified that anyone who wanted to petition about trade, the poor, or public debt should make their addresses to the specialised committees that have been appointed to offer relief and satisfaction, their term, on such matters. It was also noted that petitioners needed to specify the topics that merited scrutiny and that they, that, and that they should set down the names of witnesses in the margin of each particular upon which they desire to have them examined. This is a more, they're setting out a, a kind of regularised and quite sophisticated way in which participation should take place. And they are, in a sense, encouraging it to take place. In terms of the timetable of parliamentary business, meanwhile, we can see examples um, 
in, in any number. I mean, thousands, hundreds and hundreds of different um, editions of newspapers kind of trail this information. In January 1647, the Perfect Diurnal, as, as I said, the leading newspaper, trailed a session on MPs' office holding and, and perquisites. <laughs> a modern day expenses issue, um, which was scheduled to t take place in a fortnight's time. Advance warning um, is crucial here. Um, and in April 1648, re readers were given almost three weeks' notice of a debate about securing and settling the kingdom. Similarly, on some issues of national policy, editors flagged ongoing debates that were scheduled to take place on regular days. In June 1645, for example, it was announced that the Commons would debate church reform, the hottest issue of the day perhaps, every Wednesday and Friday, while in December 1645 readers learned that the House of Commons would consider peace propositions, another quite important issue of the time, um, on a daily basis till they be fully satisfied. The growing transparency of parliamentary proceedings sanctioned by MPs, also extended to the speeches of MPs, not just the formal formalities of business, but the speeches of MPs. The aspect of parliamentary activity that was, in principle, guarded most uh, closely. In the early 1640s, we get a flurry of printed speeches by key MPs in cheap pamphlet form. Um, and it's sometimes said that this then disappears quite quickly as a phenomenon, a fleeting phenomenon, in a moment of unusually uh, free press in 1640-41 before order was more or less um, uh, restored. But that seems to me to be a mistake to, to think that this is a fleeting thing that disappears. And what we see, I think, is interesting in relation to <clears throat> what contemporaries are doing here. That's partly because some of the MPs who, ha who, who, who have their speeches printed, my favourite example being Sir Edward Deering, quite a thoughtful MP, um, does so reflecting on his role as an MP and the part that publicising his speeches played in, in, in terms of his role as an MP and as a representative. He had a notion that this was, this was purposeful and useful and a necessary part of the political process to have for an MP to be seen to be doing things and to be, to be reported that was part of his duty as a representative. Um, and that is, um, uh, I'll come back to it, that's an interesting shift for them to think about the role of the representative in that way. I'll come back to that point. And more importantly, even after such standalone pamphlet by Sir Edward Deering or John Pym type uh, publications ceased to appear, there remained plentiful evidence in the public domain, again particularly in newspapers, about the activities and views, um, not full speeches but uh, glimpses of speeches, indicative uh, 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 glimpses of speeches from individual MPs in relation to their parliamentary activity. So in other words, there's a lot of information, more or less willingly uh, being released by uh, Parliament, um, which fostered the ways in which people might participate in parliamentary affairs. There is evidence that, that people uh, outside Parliament responded to this information and became more adroit at participating in terms of showing awareness about to whom they might best direct their attention and when it would be best to do so. This is a, um, a suggestive 
um, in other words, of a connection between attitudes to print and print culture and news and the, and the, and the news revolution, and openness, transparency, and the changing nature of representation. Until, and to some degree uh, uh, throughout the 17th century, um, but historically, leading up to the Civil War, the notion of what representat how representation worked was very unmodern because they had a notion of what we call virtual representation. MPs were elected individually, but then became collectively representative of the nation, not individually representative of their constituents, let alone accountable to their constituents as individuals. That's the historic model of representation. And in a sense, what I'm suggesting is that that model is shifting to uh, what we would think of as a more modern notion of representation, whereby the individual, and Sir Edward Deering is, seems to be grappling with this issue, not resolving it entirely, but grappling with this issue, um, and grappling with it, I would suggest, in relation to what's going on in the media. The media is part of this story. Developing a, at least some sense that representation should be an individual thing, constituent relationship with MP. This even extended to perceptions within Parliament about the possibility of, uh, uh, and, and desirability of being held accountable, not just Parliament being held accountable, individual MPs being held accountable, not least in relation to the handling of public money. This was why Parliament not only set up a committee or commission of accounts to scrutinise the finances of those in receipt of public funds, but also established an inquiry whereby people who could raise concerns, people outside Parliament could raise concerns about financial impropriety, including by MPs. The problem, or the great challenge it seems to me that contemporaries faced in this kind of conjuncture, was how to keep pace with expectations and the possibilities for participation um, that were created by a media revolution. So what seems to be happening is that the shifts in the media help or form part of a process of changing public expectations of what the institution should do, how MPs should behave. And the challenge is whether, is, is the involves the possibility that public expectations are shifting more quickly than Parliament is able to or willing to respond to those, to those shifts. There, that creates a tension that is kind of productive and awkward uh, for contemporaries. Um, and it seems to me that what, so much of what happens in relation to Parliament in the 17th century turns upon or pivots on the potential mismatch that occurs between public expectations and what MPs and peers are willing to do, and a mismatch that is, in a sense, created in part because of a media revolution. Was the institution failing to do what it was supposed to do? Was it as rep responsive and representative as it should be? What happened if representatives broke their trust and ceased to act like servants? Those are the issues, uh, and these are the issues I want to talk about now. Because what we get as a result, it seems to me, of at least nervousness about this tension um, was nothing short of investigative journalism and the, and, the, and, the, and the willingness to produce blacklists, public blacklists, naming and shaming of MPs um, who were not doing what they should do. 
This begins as early as 1641, when a, a voting list, a list of those who were voted to preserve the life of the kind of hated royal um, uh, 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 advisor, the Earl of Strafford, people who'd voted to save his life rather than to execute him, um, are publicly named and shamed. A list is posted up around London, and they find life quite difficult as a result. I referred earlier to the, to the Parliament trying to set up an investigative committee to consider complaints about financial impropriety on the part of MPs. This an attempt um, uh, to give, as they said, the kingdom full satisfaction in this great grievance, to remove scandalous aspersions. That was what Parliament wanted to do. It kind of backfired because the findings of that committee were just then leaked to the press or indeed published semi-officially. Um, Again, these kind of blacklists, um, naming and shaming, just like the Daily Telegraph a few years ago, uh, what MPs were getting in terms of money and how they were not um, perhaps being fully proper. So investigative journalism um, in a media age and an age of the kind of birth of the parties promoted um, accusations that fed into notions of individual accountability. Indeed, the publication of accusatory literature and the nervousness that it caused continued throughout um, this period, not least with criticisms of the protectoral court of Oliver Cromwell and, and his parliaments. One narrative offered an account of places of profit, salaries and advantages that Cromwell's cronies had under the present power. And this was published for information of the people. This was, in effect, a precursor of what we would now think of the think of as the register of members' interests. And it catalogued MPs who were related to Cromwell, beholden to Cromwell, um, uh, and those who had um, offered him the crown, the so-called kinglings um, of 1657. But it was also explicitly a rallying cry. It prompted readers to question whether such men were fit to be legislators, lawmakers, and framers of governments, and levyers of money, and whether private interests would trump the public service that they were, quote, hired to serve. Indeed, the author uh, pleaded for a lively spirit among the public and implored readers to collect further such information for the discovery of wickedness. And where this led was to overt criticism of Parliament as an institution, kind of synoptic um, critiques of Parliament. Uh, as an, an, an example, I'll draw attention to a series of uh, fairly remarkable pamphlets from um, 1648 uh, from the pen of a man called Amon Wilby, I think it's a, a pseudonym, um, to provide what he called the poor, oppressed, betrayed, and almost destroyed commons of England with an account of, quote, a generation of ambitious, imperious MPs and of the subtle practices of a haughty, traitorous party in the houses. Will be targeted specific um, grandees, some of the most eminent um, parliamentarians in the House of Commons, the Earl of Manchester, Stamford, um, Sir Philip Stapleton, Denzel Hollis, Sir Walter Earle, the leaders um, of at least one faction in, in, in Parliament, who had, he said, violated laws and liberties, displayed boundless ambitious and insatiable avarice, and who sought to save their own stakes and to secure their own lives. Such men were apparently unable to give any good account of the money they received, and will be argued that a political settlement was impossible so long as they stood to benefit financially. More importantly, will be also analysed the power and subtlety, as he called it, of the money they received, 
sorry, the power and subtlety of their practices, their manipulation of processes and proceedings for political ends, their ability to deceive and seduce other MPs, and their tendency to wield patronage for political effect. This was done for Wilby by means of a detailed prosopography, which revealed how the commons would f was filled with sons, creatures, malignants, all uh, uh, punies in state matters, <laughs> who were thought to dance after these men's pipes and walk by their lights. To this, he added detailed case studies that revealed how the political system worked to the detriment of individual citizens. Wilby concluded that the very essence and end of a parliament had been perverted not least because of the tendency to combine legislative, judicial, and administrative roles. And he argued that MPs were elected by us, but act not for us, that they had betrayed their trusts, and that they ought to be questioned and held accountable. Pointing out that MPs were servants, not masters, will be challenged their claim to political immunity, saying that uh, this was uh, quote, a new hydra-headed prerogative that would lead to arbitrary rule. And this kind of language was echoed all throughout um, 1647, 1648, not least agitators in the army, the rank and file members of the army um, who, 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 who kind of, in a sense, democratized the army in 1647, who referred to the possibility of purging parliament and revoking the trust which the people gave them on the grounds that trust had been forfeited and abused to the ruin of the whole kingdom. What these onlooking critics are doing is responding to the information that is now newly available about MPs and rethinking their views about what we can do about it and how representation is, isn't, could be, should be uh, working. Similar grumbling can be observed not just from these kind of uh, 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 synoptic critics, if you like, but also uh, from those who experience Parliament as petitioners, as individual petitioners. Here, one of my favourite is um, a rather bad poet called George Wither, an inveterate and early adopter in terms of uh, using um, uh, printed petitions to advance his claims. In 1647, he produced a single sheet um, printed regarding his financial claim against Parliament which he said had been verified by the Committee of Accounts. And in 1648, he appeared in person at Westminster and laid down a petition for arrears upon the ground. This was taken in by a gentleman of the House, but nothing was done in it. And so in 1655 and 1656, um, other printed petitions received help from MPs um, who were a little bit more helpful. By 1659, Wither felt compelled to print yet another petition which elaborated on his long suffering for want of money, offered a detailed history of his troubles, and outlined the many occasions when he had experienced delays as a suitor for justice. And by this stage, his frustration was so great that he was even prepared to criticize a specific MP, John Fielder, whom he accused of defrauding the state. He complained about waiting unheard, unheeded, about petitions being neglected, about having received no aid. He grumbled about the cost of participating or trying to participate in Parliament. And he even hinted that frustration with the political process would provoke radicalization by concluding that he to whom the state doth nothing owe should rich by three or four employments grow, whilst they pine who thereon did all bestow. He said he had, didn't have enough friends in high places. Um, um, he hadn't 
bribed enough um, decision makers. Get a naive faith, he said, that justice should be neither bought nor sold. And he suggested that it would be difficult to remain patient. And that it would, uh, he could have at least hints at, at radicalization. The tactics would become more aggressive. Similar, if more muted things can be seen in the way in which individual citizens interacted with their representatives. And this is true to go back to Deering. Deering thinks that he should explain himself um, to his constituents, not least in part because his constituents are responding to his speeches and saying, yeah, we like that bit, we didn't like that bit, you should try harder on that thing, that, uh, that issue. Certain constituents move to instruct their MPs, their term. And constituents, as well as kind of army radicals, begin to play around with the idea of broken trust and what might follow. Thus, people outside Parliament thought about the role of Parliament and representatives, the relationship between MPs and constituents. They reflected on the performance of the institution, but also on the performance of individual MPs. There was a danger, a real danger of, of expectations being kind of enhanced and then frustrated and of people becoming impatient and more radical. Print helped inform them, but the, me the print media also became a means of escalating grievances in more or less restrained ways. I'm nearly finished. Frustrations led to more petitioning. Frustrations with Parliament led to repeated petitioning, not least showing awareness about parliamentary processes, where a petition lay, what progress had been made, where the blockages were. And gradually, we see a willingness to escalate tactics and escalate rhetoric. And it seems to me that what happens to some degree, whether or not it was enough, is, 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 the, is the interesting point. MPs responded to some degree by thinking more or less constantly as this situation unfolded about the proper limits of secrecy, the degree of transparency and accessibility of parliamentary processes. They became conscious of the need to avoid censure abroad, i.e. in the public domain, as a result of the decisions they made at Westminster and the power of the media. Conscious of the gaze of the public in the age of print. Individual MPs sought to be seen to be busy and active, working for their constituents and eagerly reporting on their own activity. One MP from Norwich, Thomas Atkin, constantly writing letters back to his constituents saying, I'm really, really busy. I really, really am busy. Here's what I've been doing. Believe me, uh, you've, you've never had a busier MP. And then also hinting that if you want to send me detailed instructions about what, what you want me to do, I'm happy to do it. So, to, to wrap up briefly, um, by the 1650s, the term fourth estate has, has been conjured. It is sometimes used to, to refer to the army, um, but it's implicitly used, I think, to refer to um, the media. And the, pre the press was certainly integral to what I'm describing in terms of these processes. Technological change makes possible new practices on the part of politicians and members of the public. And these new practices um, uh, impinge upon big issues, i.e. the nature and the workings of representation and of institutions, provoking and indeed responding to some degree of rethinking about the nature of representation uh, and, and how, what Parliament could and should do. 
story of the 17th century is a rather messy story of grappling with these difficult issues, not always very successfully, not always leading to consistent uh, policy changes. But what we can see is at least some recognition, a recognition that perhaps is implicit in the comments of the MP that which I started about the need to, to tweet. Um, uh, uh, and, and the utility of tweeting, some sort of recognition, but rather messily, then, as now, with how our representative institutions can and should, and perhaps aren't yet, responding to the power of new media and the media revolution. There I'll stop. Thank you.